This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kelham. And I'm Matthew Moore. Today is the last day somebody may register to vote and cast a ballot in the 2022 Arkansas midterm elections. If you're looking for a voter registration form, you can find that at KUAF.com slash vote. And we'll spend some time with one of the items that will be on that November ballot. Just ahead, an excerpt from this week's new episode of our podcast, Natural Election. This week, the podcast focused on issues, including issue one. The proposed adaptation of the state constitution would give the Arkansas House and Senate the authority to call a special session. And later, death and art. An Honors College Signature Seminar next semester will examine not just how artists have depicted death and the afterlife, but also how medieval art played a significant role in daily behavior toward death. And we'll hear sounds from the 14th Annual Observation of Indigenous Peoples of the Americas Day in Fayetteville. First, though, a measure on the ballot is looking to change the way the Arkansas legislature works. Arkansas Issue 1 proposes that state lawmakers would be able to call themselves into special session instead of waiting on the governor to do so. In the latest episode of Natural Election, we start with some context. The Arkansas legislature is made up of two bodies, the House and the Senate, 100 state representatives and 35 state senators. Typically, this body meets in what is called a general session. This is scheduled to occur in January, and it will last for about 60 days unless the legislature votes to extend it. For many years, these general sessions were every other year. That was until 2008. When voters approved a constitutional amendment. A constitutional amendment. That feels fitting, huh? That's Andrew DeMillo, by the way. He is the Capitol correspondent in the Little Rock Bureau for the Associated Press. That went from uh, biennial uh, sessions, you know, meeting every other year, to annual sessions. Now, in odd-numbered years, the legislature meets for their general session. Where they take up any issues, and uh, in even-numbered years for what they call fiscal sessions, which was intended to, to focus uh, primarily on the budget. So what was once an every-other-year legislature has been an annual legislature for the last decade-plus, and that doesn't even count the other meetings lawmakers are committed to having in Little Rock. A large number of committees meet. You have the Legislative Council, which is the Basically, the, the legislature is kind of governing that body when when they're not in session. And the, the, that council has a number of subcommittees. And, uh, you know, one of the changes that we've seen over the years was there was a constitutional amendment approved back in 2014 that required a legislative review and approval of you know, many agency rules. And that also expanded the scope and really expanded the amount of time and work that that lawmakers are are doing now. Did you catch that? Another constitutional amendment? Noticing a pattern here? So, not counting special sessions, legislators are very busy. But it makes sense that there are some extreme examples that would require them to come together for, as they call it, an extraordinary session. I spoke to Kristen Higgins, a program associate in the Arkansas Public Policy Center, assured she would be able to concretely answer some questions. Can you give a little bit of parameters maybe for us as to kind of set the guideline of like what constitutes a special session, like what makes something a special session? Uh, there's no definition. Oh, good. <laughs> there's nothing in there that says this is a special issue. It is literally whatever the governor feels that the legislature needs to, to deal with. So while there's no 
definition? The way the Constitution reads is that the governor is the one to call the legislature into special session. The governor sets the agenda, and they are supposed to last 15 days. There was one year where uh, Bill Clinton had a, a special session agenda of like 30 plus items. So how that, <laughs> that was a special session, that to me almost sounded just like a legislative session. That's just a regular <laughs> session. Yeah. Right. But it was it was a special session. Uh, when I when I talk to people and I give presentations, I talk about special sessions and I say, well, and don't think that a special session is actually special because it happens all the time. <laughs> Since 2017, special sessions have been called. That's on top of the 11 general sessions and seven fiscal sessions. So yes, there's been nearly as many extraordinary sessions as there have been ordinary sessions. So let's dive into this amendment. Why do supporters of issue one say that they are in favor of this? Kristen Higgins again. Well, legislators say that they want to have equal power. You know, if you think about the the branches of government and each of them being equal, um, they see that the governor has too much authority and that they don't have enough. Someone could argue that, you know, that if a law is passed by the legislature and the governor vetoes that, it doesn't take a two-thirds majority. It doesn't take 60 percent. It just takes 50 percent plus one to overturn a governor's veto. So in that capacity, you know, the legislature does have a pretty substantial amount of authority. And that's exactly what opponents say. They they bring that up. They say Arkansas already has a weakened governor governor position because of that veto authority that the legislature has. So that's exactly what opponents of issue one are bringing up. Andrew DeMillo agrees. The special session is one of the, you know, one of the areas where the governor really still has, has an advantage here. You know, Arkansas is a state where there are a, a good, a, you know, good number of limits on a governor's power. Uh, with a special session, the governor really has has an advantage of being able to set the agenda. There's such a high bar for legislators being able to try to get other things taken up uh, at the end of the session that it it doesn't really it doesn't really happen. There's really been you know, reservations about trying to open up the agenda like this. So this this would, if it does pass, it does kind of take away an advantage that governors traditionally have have had here, and would that would be a pretty big shift. Do you know of any specific examples of of topics or policies that the General Assembly has wanted to bring to a special session and the governor has declined to do so? Um, you know, I think areas where you've seen this this fight uh, this fight come up, and I don't even under these rules, I'm not sure if they would have been able to come up under the rules under this amendment. Uh, but you've seen fights over, you know, trying to bring up uh, abortion restri- abortion restrictions during special sessions, uh, you know, or uh, limits on what businesses can do uh, in terms of uh, in terms of vaccine requirements. We saw that during the pandemic, and gov- you know, the governor really had you know the power to say the power to say no. I, I want to keep this limited to just you know you know one, two, or three topics of of my own here. Another important element of this amendment is that it requires two-thirds of both the House and the Senate to call themselves into session. Some of those examples that have come up, I'm still not sure under 
the setup if they if they would come up because two thirds is still a pretty high bar to have to clear. It's a lot of votes. Yeah, exactly. Opponents also say that if the legislature is allowed to call themselves into session, it makes it even less of a part-time job than it is currently. Randy Zook is the CEO of the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce, and he said in a press release recently, quote, voters benefit from having a truly representative citizen legislature, and if issue one passes, makes it harder for the average Arkansan to serve we will move even closer to a full-time legislature. Stanley Hill, the vice president of public affairs and government relations of the Arkansas Farm Bureau, agrees, saying, quote, The bottom line is special sessions should be called in rare circumstances and not used as a political tool. All of that context in place, the ballot measure is quite straightforward. The language, while clunky, is exactly what it sets out to be. So, what does a yes vote mean and a no vote mean here? A yes vote means that you approve the Arkansas legislature's ability to call themselves into extraordinary session, so long as they can get the approval of two-thirds of the members of both the House and the Senate. A no vote means that you want to keep the authority to call an extraordinary session solely with the governor. That was a portion of the latest episode of Natural Election, a podcast produced by Ozarks at Large and KUAF. You can hear about all four of the issues you'll find on the ballot this year in the Natural Election podcast feed. A new report from Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families places Arkansas's teen birth rate as the highest in the country. The publication, The Challenge of Arkansas Teen Births, Facing Reality to Lower the Nation's Highest Rate, shows Arkansas's teen birth rate at almost double the national average, 28 per 1,000, compared to the national rate of 15 per 1,000. According to the report, more than three-fourths of the teen pregnancies in Arkansas are unintended. The report also finds Arkansas teen sexual behavior isn't different from teens in other states, though their lack of use of contraceptives stands out. An outdoor music series will continue in downtown Fort Smith with the $90,000 grant from the Levitt Foundation. The award means the Levitt Amp Fort Smith Music Series, which began with concerts on 10 consecutive summer Thursday nights in 2021, can continue for another three years at Riverfront Park. The series is presented by 64.6 Downtown. Support for KUAF comes from the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. The museum is hosting a Dia de los Muertos festival with free admission November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This celebration of life features food, music, and more. Information at M-O-N-A-H dot org. KUAF is supported by Greenacre Easy Living, a small assisted living located in Rogers and serving the elderly of Arkansas under the same ownership since 1992. 631-1552 or com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Artists have been intrigued by death and what comes after for millennia. Art historians, likewise, have been fascinated with how artists and their patrons 
understand images of death, heaven, and hell. Lynn Jacobs, a distinguished professor in the School of Art at the University of Arkansas, will lead an Honors College Signature Seminar next spring, Death and Art, A Human History. Last month, she came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to discuss the class and her public preview lecture that she'll deliver tomorrow. Before we get to that conversation, though, unlike you, Matthew, mm-hmm. to look at a work of art Lynn Jacobs brought with her for a discussion and that we'll talk about during that conversation. Do you see it? It's up there on that screen. I'm looking at it, yes. It's called The Ambassadors. It was painted by Hans Holbein the Younger in the first third of the 16th century. Uh-huh. Can you describe what you see? We're looking at two bearded gentlemen who are flanking a two-tiered table. One is wearing a very uh, bold fur coat. The other one's a little more modest of a, of a robe. Um, and they're surrounded by, looks like a stringed instruments on the bottom shelf. There's a globe. I'm seeing a couple of globes here. Yes. Okay. I want to direct your eyes, though, to the bottom middle of the painting. Do you see what's an image between their feet? I can tell there's something there. I can't, I couldn't tell you what it is, though. Perfect. We'll get to that in just a moment. All right. Lynn Jacobs says her interest goes beyond just what is depicted on the canvas. She's interested in the role art played in medieval beliefs about the afterlife. The function of the art was dealing with people's fate after death. And so what happens in the period that I work on, which is the 15th and 16th century, is that there's this tremendous focus on death. And obviously, it's not that more people died in that period, right? Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Mortality is 100%. We all die. But in this period, and we have, this period is, well, we have uh, the 14th century is the famous period of the Black Death. But throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, we had recurrent periods of the bubonic plague. There was, you know, a great deal of famine, war, and, you know, we also have just, there really was not very good medicine. And so it was really a period where there, it was, it was not at all uncommon where you could be perfectly healthy in the morning and dead by night. <laughs> and mm. in addition, it was this period where you're coming at the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modernity and a period of the Reformation, so it was a period of great turmoil in terms of religion. And so it's this great age of transition, and so it seems to be a period of great unease and and great sort of general concerns about death, and a period where the artists seem to have been particularly inventive in their imagery of death. So there's just a tremendous unease in society as well as a great inventiveness with the artists concerned with probing death imagery in the art. And the other thing we have to realize is that, you know, in, in, in Catholicism in this period, there was this belief that, beginning in the 11th and 12th century, that for most people after they died, they went to this place called purgatory. Now, if, if you were a perfect person, basically a saint, 
you would go to heaven. If you were a terrible, terrible person, you would go to hell. But the average person went to purgatory. And this was a place where you would essentially go to a place like hell. And you would have these terrible torments, but you would work your way out of it after you experienced this torment. And eventually you could get to heaven. But it would last, or it would at least feel like it lasted, for thousands and thousands of years. And so the way you could get out of this was during your life by doing good works, and it could offset the sins that you would inevitably do during your life. Um, and, but, and, and a very good work would be to give art to the church. And by praying in, in front of images, especially images that were indulgenced, that is, they were designated as images that if you prayed in front of, you would get time off of purgatory. And some of these images you could get like 11. And there was a kind of inflation of indulgences in the period we're talking about. So it kind of would get, if you prayed in front of this image, you would get 11,000 years off of purgatory. So there was a kind of gradual increase and popes would say, would designate certain images or certain prayers in front of certain images, which would give you time off of purgatory. And also by giving money for masses to be said after you were dead. Um, and those would be said in front of altarpieces, which were, were images. So art got really kind of tied into all of this kind of um, saving your soul after death. So it wouldn't even necessarily have to, end, uh, to be uh, an artwork that showed death. But all of these artworks were tied into saving your soul after death. And then if you gave an image to the church, which also depicted you praying, which became common to include pictures of yourself praying within an artwork, that reminded people, because after you died, when you were in purgatory, it's very, what could help you was living people praying for you. That could give you time off of purgatory. So then we have artworks with images of you, portraits of you, and sometimes with inscriptions to remind people to pray for you. And so there was this kind of death economy where the living would pray for the dead and put up images to remind them. And many tombs also have inscriptions reminding people to pray for the dead person. And so, and people would pray for their, their ancestors. And so there was this whole, so many artworks, even portraits, are set up to remind people to pray for the souls of the people to help lessen their time in purgatory. This sounds like it could become very political. If I'm an artist... It might be in my best interest to get my artwork designated as one that could get time off for someone who prays in front of it? Well, um, I mean, artists were, I mean, they just got a lot of work, right? They could get a lot of work um, making art, you know, making art for, um, for people that would help them after death. And also, you know, it also 
it, the whole the social status politics it all intertwined and so you know a tomb could serve multiple functions it could help aggrandize the person who was being uh, being portrayed and what and tombs could be erected while they were already alive to show how important they were and get that ready it reminded the person who was alive to prepare themselves to die because one of the worst things to do was to die unprepared for it but also it, it had social status and so talk about politics this this is Holbein's ambassadors and he painted this famous portrait which is in London uh, in the National Gallery, and it shows these two ambassadors who were from France who came to England to the court of Henry VIII. And this was painted in 1533, which was a key critical year, because this was the year that Henry VIII officially married Anne Boleyn and had her crowned, and she gave birth to Elizabeth the first, who was, right. became Elizabeth the first. Kind of an interesting day, because, of course, the day Elizabeth II has... Right. Uh, was buried, and um, these fr- these guys came over from France to, on a kind of secret political mission because they were worried that this whole time this was also the year that uh, the they uh, um, that Henry VIII broke from the Catholic Church because he wanted to have uh, Anne Boleyn, his marriage to Anne Boleyn. Um, certified as uh, uh, legitimate, mm-hmm. and the pope wouldn't annul his first marriage. And the French were very worried because they were still Catholic. They wanted to keep the relations with England okay. So they were on a kind of diplomatic mission here. But they decided to have their portraits made by Halbein, who was working for Henry VIII. He painted all the wives of the wives of Henry VIII. He painted Henry VIII. So they had this... Um, this painting made, and it celebrates them, it, uh, it glorifies them, it has all these scientific instruments uh, showing them as learned uh, scholars. It's a, it's a full-length portrait, shows they were very wealthy because uh, that, and, and status, and often only aristocrats had their full-length portrait. Um, this, this, um, this particular man is a bishop, but this particular guy here, this ambassador here, Jean de Danteville, was actually very wealthy, very wealthy family. But what's interesting about it is it has this weird thing here at the bottom. Yeah, I was looking at that. It, I mean, it looks like some sort of broken kayak or something. Yeah. So it's a very weird thing, and everybody wonders, what is that? And what it is is a skull. A skull? It's a skull, but it's done in this weird pers- distorted perspective called anamorphosis, which if you look at it from a certain angle, you'll see it's a skull. Oh. And so sort of they're standing at the bottom, and it's a reference to death. And so below them is a reference to death. But then on the side here, it's very hard to see. But is a crucifix. Oh wow! You have to really be looking for that. <laughs> so he hides. He distorts the reference to death, and he hides the reference. So it's it's a traditional death and resurrection. But what you think is just a portrait of these men glorifying them and their accomplishments and their status as ambassadors from France to England, both important people who were sent over by the King of France to serve his interests in England to the French king, um, to the English king. But yet, 
below everything is their mortality and their concerns with salvation after after death so you know even you know in the midst of everything you know is always underneath everything this underlying concern for mortality and fears of death and um and so it and and so we always have this blending of all these things on one's concerns for social status politics intrigue but always death underlies it and so and, and I find this in so much of the art, you know, that, you know, even, um, even, even when people are asserting their social status, asserting their wealth, and many of these artworks were commissioned by wealthy people, but below everything, and one of the big concerns, even when they're using art to show their status and importance, there are also these concerns with what's going to happen after they die and with the fate of their souls. And that is an such an important function and motivation between a huge amount of the art production of this period. Okay, I've got three questions that only a non-art historian could ask, so I appreciate <laughs> your patience. Number one, would, would viewers of this work in the 16th century get that they wouldn't have to have it explained to them would they recognize that that is a skull would they see the crucifix and understand what was being depicted there well that that particular anamorphosis actually there were sort of some famous ones within england um famous portraits that were done in that so i think people at least some of the sophisticated audiences would have would have known that the crucifix might have been a little bit of a kind of like an hidden, easter egg yeah maybe yeah. an easter egg for some people yes um um, I think, um, and it might have, it might have been a little bit tricky, but I th there and it's and for there were some famous um, portraits done with that distorted perspective where they actually had special gl uh, glasses in front of the painting to look at it, and we think they it's possible they had a, a special viewing device in front of that painting that they would have been able to see the skull in the proper perspective. So if they had that, that would have been a kind of giveaway, but we're not sure about that. All right, another question along this vein. Where would people see art? Would it be churches? Was, was that the main venue to, to see publicly displayed art? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would have seen art in churches, um, you know, in aristocratic venues. You know, people would have seen them, you know, in, in, these, in, in the, you know, palaces and, and, and um, aristocratic homes. But in addition, in this period... People also were in in Northern Europe. There was a large production of printmaking that we see in the begin in the middle of the 15th century, and so people who had less money could buy religious prints or non-religious prints. And so we have, for example, certain devotional prints that were indulgence prints that people pinned up in their homes and they prayed to. So at the, in, in the middle of our period, we start to see that imagery could be produced in multiple copies and could be bought by you know, people with lesser means and in their homes. And of course, also a lot of imagery... Uh, that would be not cheap, but we now have, we also have manuscript production, and a lot of imagery relating to death is found in books of hours and upper class people. It's sometimes called the, the bestseller of the Middle Ages, but it really was accessible to only wealthy bourgeoisie and aristocrats. But one of the things in the books of hours, which were lay prayer books, was the hour was the office of the dad and 
it was encouraged for everybody to pray that set of prayers every day to prepare themselves for death. Wow. And finally, do you see any, I mean, we still have, since the 15th and 16th centuries, we've had works that have dealt with death or the soul, right? I think of Frankenstein or even maybe up to through the Sopranos. I mean, there was a lot of consideration of death and and what was death like. Do you ever think about contemporary artwork that maybe at least has some sort of through line to these works? Well, I don't I don't do a lot of thinking, and I'll leave that to a lot of my um, colleagues who work on contemporary art. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I've definitely thought about in relation to my own research on Bosch is I've really um, looked at a lot of stuff about the philosophy of horror because one of the things I'm really interested in is how Bosch creates horror and the effect of horror in his in his scenes of hell. So I've found that um, looking at how the that the effect of horror within the horror film genre has helped me understand Bosch's works mm. and sort of the the aspect of the monster, the Frankenstein monster, and and Bosch's approach to the monster has has actually there's a lot of similarities within horror films and what Bosch is doing. I think that's that's helped me understand that. So. So I've that that kind of element of the modern horror genre has actually I think helped me understand Bosch's monsters and Bosch's approach to making his scenes of hell create an effect of horror and revulsion in the viewer. Um, that's that that aspect of, of modern art and literature has informed my work. Lynn Jacobs is a distinguished professor in the School of Art at the University of Arkansas. She'll lead the Honors College Signature Seminar Series, Death and Art, A Human History, next semester. She'll deliver a free digital public lecture tomorrow evening beginning at 515. We have a link to the form to register for that lecture at OzarksAtLarge.com. Mic check, mic check. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's new underwriting director. KUAF's news and music programming reaches more than 50,000 people each week over the air, online, and through our iOS app. And you could reach our audience with your business or organization by underwriting on KUAF. To learn more about underwriting, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Matthew. Yes. Quiz time. Okay. All right. Uh, there's this entity called Truly.com. Okay. And they send out these, you know, reports every <laughs> once in a while trying to get you to do a news story. Okay. I bid on this one. I'm not, I didn't talk to anyone at Truly.com, but it's got a fun little quiz we're going to do. All right. They are tracking the Google searches in each state that start with how-to. Okay. I'm going to give you the top three how-to searches on a monthly basis in Arkansas, and you're going to tell me which one you think is number one. Okay. This is based so far in 2022. In 2022. Is it how to screenshot on Windows? Okay. Is it how to tie a tie? Okay. Or is it how to write a check? The most how-to search on Google in 2022 in I, Arkansas. I don't think it's Thai. Um, the other two feel a little on the nose, though, because, I mean, like, um, I'm going to say 
How to screenshot on Windows. That is second. Okay. Third is how to write a check. Oh. The most is how to tie a tie. Is it really? We're averaging in Arkansas 2,900 searches per month on how to tie a tie. Kyle, do you know how to tie a tie? <laughs> what do you think? I wear one every day. And by the way, the uh, trending upward search right. in Arkansas, number one, how to play Wordle. Number two, how to turn off iPhone 13. <laughs> Arkansas SHIP, the Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program, announces open enrollment now through December 7th. Arkansas SHIP offers free, confidential, unbiased, and educational advice for those needing to find the best Medicare Part D drug plan for 2023. For more, 1-800-224-6330. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, presents its biggest season ever beginning October 29th at Walton Arts Center. The eight-concert season features beloved classics, the annual tradition Christmas show, a hybrid orchestra jazz concert, groundbreaking contemporary voices, and a special concert for families, representing a wide vision of what orchestral music can be. Tickets and subscriptions at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. Political engagement takes many forms, electioneering, community organizing, editorializing, public protest, social networking, and a little-known historic practice, craftivism. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich met with a contemporary craftivist as well as an art historian who specializes in aesthetics and politics to bring us this story. Donna Mulholland, needle felts inside her studio cottage on Mount Sequoia this morning, her silvery blonde hair framing a grin. And it is the coolest craft. And what you do is you have a special needle that has barbs on the end. And then you have what's raw wool that's just kind of like cotton candy, fluffy wool and it can be on many different colors. And then you put a piece of felt on top of the foam pad and you start poking the wool. It becomes felt. The 68-year-old San Francisco native and collage artist is also a singer-songwriter with husband Kelly Mulholland, an Ozarks native, who perform as the popular folk grass duo Still on the Hill. She first began to display her collages at local house concerts, but rather than sell them for cash, she offered them up for silent auction, donating the money to a local homeless shelter. And that's how I started becoming a craftivist. But Mulholland didn't realize she was a craftivist at first until a friend recently pointed out she had merged her crafting with activism. I just resonated with that so much because I've struggled with calling myself an artist. Mulholland is self-taught and earns her keep with music, not crafting. She crafts to illuminate rising climate devastation, economic injustice, cultural genocide, and ecological harm. As a craftivism project, Kelly and I created a whole body of songs about birds called Words on Birds. And I made 30 large endangered felted birds to auction them off to raise scholarships for the Audubon camp that we teach at. We teach birding at Audubon camp. We did the concert and auctioned all the birds off and raised money for scholarships, and I actually paid for my studio and some supplies. 
supplies to craft a new series of life-sized needle-felted figures of fierce Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, a polar bear wearing a placard, I love ice, and a Sami reindeer in traditional cobalt blue regalia. Mulholland's maiden name is Jirna, which means star in Swedish. Her ancestors are Finnish and indigenous Sami, an ancient nomadic tribe that once occupied large portions of present-day northern Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia prior to forced assimilation and ethnic cleansing. Mulholland has written songs about her Sami roots and produced an exquisite hand-bound illustrated monograph as part of her craftivism, which she does not market and is drawing increasing attention. I have been so blessed because of the craftivism. People drop wool off on my doorstep. Well, I think this this term craftivism really took off uh, in the early 2000s, I would say, and it's really a recent, more recent phenomenon. John Blakinger is endowed associate professor of contemporary art at the School of Art at the University of Arkansas, where he directs the art history program. You know, the biggest instance that comes to mind is 2017, the Women's March in Washington, D.C., the pussy hats that were handmade but also political, and it's really bringing together feminism, sometimes queer politics, sometimes environmentalism, the sort of anti-capitalist or anti-consumerist, anti-corporate ethos is also often uh, part of craftivism. Blakinger says craftivists often use materials that are denigrated in the conventional art world. So part of what makes these projects so interesting is how they're tapping into uh, traditions that might be associated with domesticity, with so-called quote-unquote women's work, things like weaving, knitting, crocheting, quilting, uh, these techniques that haven't been part of uh, the fine arts traditionally. And that sort of marginal status, I think, gives these projects a lot of power. Power, crafted by suffragettes struggling to obtain the right to vote in America, and even earlier by members of the international art and crafts movement in the late 1800s, an anti-industrial confederation pressing for economic and social reform. You know, the self-sufficiency of craft was a way to resist the mechanization and alienation of life uh, after the Industrial Revolution. Craftivists by nature do not seek fame or fortune. Instead, they craft to benefit the commons. A postmodern example, he says, is a 1970s installation called Woman's House by Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro. And in this house, it was a condemned house that these artists took over and turned into a, an art installation, a feminist art installation. There was a space called Crocheted uh, Environment, which was created by an artist uh, named Faith Wilding. And she created basically a womb-like space out of crochet. And it was both about you know, embracing this uh, medium, this sort of domestic medium, but also creating a space where people could gather, where you could um, partake in activism and organizing, consciousness-raising exercises. So I think that gets to what these projects can do. It's not just creating a decorative object. It's also about using craft as a social tool to connect with other people, to um, organize, to... Um, you know, engage in a larger mission. 
craftivism won't end climate change, or racism, Blakinger says, but it can build momentum towards change by connecting people and communities to critical issues. But craftivism for the makers can be cathartic, a way to process anxiety triggered by today's extreme politics, weather, plague, and unprovoked war. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ozark Folkways is hosting a panel discussion on craftivism Saturday at 1.30 as part of the two-day Folkways Fiberfest in Winslow. For details, ozarkfolkways.org. The Sequoia's Cabin Museum in Salisaw is going to observe Sequoia Day Saturday from 10 until 4. Various artists will be there selling artwork. Chugi Kingfisher will be telling stories and playing his flute. And the Cherokee National Adult Choir will perform. The event is open to the public. Visitors can participate in a marbles game, cornstalk shoot, stickball, a pottery firing demonstration, and flint napping. Sequoia's Cabin Museum is located at 470-288-Highway 101 in Salisaw. Join KUAF, the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, and the Fayetteville Public Library for the R Word book discussion series with author, speaker, and historian Jamar Tisby who will join us virtually to speak on his book, How to Fight Racism, that was featured on The R Word, a limited series podcast from KUAF. Can you share some of your story with us? Who are you and why are you here today? (laughs) It's a long story. The short version is I am a black Christian who has learned the hard way about the enduring racism in some circles of white Christianity. Join in the discussion on how to fight racism, Thursday, October 13th at 6.30 p.m. Go to KUAF.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday, the city of Fayetteville, University of Arkansas, and the Native American Student Association at the U of A observed Indigenous Peoples of the Americas Day with a walk from campus to the Trail of Tears marker and park near the intersection of Stadium Drive and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth collected sounds from the observation. My name is Summer Wilkie. I'm the youth coordinator for the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas. It's important for us to uh, hold this uh, ceremony here at this particular spot because we want to acknowledge the Indigenous history of the area, which includes multiple Trail of Tears and removal routes representing many indigenous peoples uh, path to Indian Territory, what was Indian Territory in Oklahoma. Um, But beyond that, uh, we want to acknowledge indigenous to Arkansas people, um, including the Osage, Caddo, and Quapaw Nations. Um, Then even on a larger scale as an institution that serves um, the whole world, really a global uh, representation of uh, people on our campus, the entire world of indigenous people and uh, history of colonization and uh, obstacles that those people have faced, especially here in the Americas. Um, I am Jessica Wald and I currently serve as the Native American Student Association president. Uh, my name is Alex Davis and I currently serve as the vice president of NASA. 
And my name is Casey Captain, and I currently serve as a treasurer of NASA. We have walked out to the Trail of Tear Marker that uh, was camp for uh, 1,100 Cherokees, mm -hmm. and the, on their way through the Trail of Tears that were kind of forced by Andrew Jackson to move out of their rightful territory. Um, so today we're kind of out here remembering all of the ancestors, um, just kind of some trauma that did happen. Um, but we're here to put, you know, the remembrance because of how important today is for a lot of our ancestors and how, you know, we, this is like, we belong here and it's our place and no one should tell us otherwise if it's not. I feel like everyone should know whose land that they're on and that they should respect the land no matter how they see it because as histor history has really proven itself and that if we don't recognize the people that were here first then it's just going to end up terribly badly for all those people that um, had to go through that and their families. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, my family actually walked the Trail of Tears and I, I'm originally from Oklahoma so I've always heard the stories of how our family settled in Oklahoma and what people don't realize is that that removal will affect generations, generations, because I still think about oh I don't want to leave my home in Oklahoma or I don't want to move too far because I understand how important that land is to our family and uh, history has been whitewashed, as people would probably refer to today as Columbus Day and not Indigenous Peoples Day is a huge, huge, like, I think hump we're trying to get over, but it's hard because people want to continue to be in their old ways. It's breaking old habits um, and kind of putting more history back onto it. Highlights from yesterday's observation of Indigenous Peoples of the Americas Day in Fayetteville. It was held at the Trail of Tears Marker and Park near the intersection of Stadium Drive and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. This next story addresses depression and suicidal ideation. Please be advised, if you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988. For many, talking about your mental health can be a source of stigma and shame. That was the case for Toby Slough for years. Today, his work is dedicated to helping students live emotionally healthier lives and provide them with steps to improve their mental wellness. I spoke to Toby yesterday and asked what was the moment for him that he realized that he needed to address his mental health. But what happened to me was I woke up one night, about one in the morning, uh, breathing hard, sweating, uh, hands shaking, and I didn't know what to do with it. And so I got up and just started walking the hall of my house. And I did that for 17 days. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat very much or I couldn't keep anything down. Uh, I didn't want to tell anybody what was going on because I wasn't, I literally thought I was going crazy. And it led me finally to a place where I was driving on a major interstate and kind of caught myself in a daydream of wanting to run into a bridge abutment and take my life. And uh, it scared me. I swerved back on the interstate. And that's when I went to see a counselor, found a friend who helped me find a counselor. And I was diagnosed with this anxiety and panic disorder that, uh, you know, has been my journey for most of my adult life. Why did you feel like you couldn't talk to anybody about it? Shame. It's the same thing I'm finding everywhere I go in America. People think the issue is the anxiety or the depression. It's really not. It's the shame. Shame causes you to isolate. When you isolate, I always say your isolation fires up your imagination, and then it's never like 
you know, it's never a rom-com. It's never a comedy. It's always a horror film, that movie that starts playing in your head. And I was ashamed, honestly. I was embarrassed that there were things happening out of my control. Like most people, I was living with a lie that it had to be my fault, something I had done. And so I was just embarrassed to tell anyone. You have started your own ministry now where you're where you're working with this sort of stuff. How did you go from being someone who was experiencing this to being an advocate for this kind of care? <laughs> well, quite honestly, I was so frustrated with what I was hearing, especially in the faith community. This concept of you, if you just prayed harder, you just studied your Bible more. I was doing all of those things. I was leading in, in a faith-based community, and yet I wasn't finding that. And uh, finally, I began to understand that, that the freedom I was looking for wasn't going to be the absence of these issues, but it was finding a way to get connected to a power bigger than myself in the midst of those issues. And when your target changes from, you know, I argued with a counselor one time, literally for an hour, about how many panic attacks I could have and still be okay. And I had no grid for anything other than zero. Well, I still fight them from time to time, but I have discovered ways not just to get by, but to thrive, even in the midst of those kind of moments in my life. And so I really wasn't hearing the message. I was hearing lots of messages about four steps to not doing something or this whole concept of just pray more. But the 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 concept of my experience, which was freedom in spite of those issues, uh, was really what led me to begin to build a platform, begin to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I was talking about it long before we had a pandemic, long before, I've been 25 years I've been talking about this issue. Uh, and now, you know, a pandemic hits, the the stats are unmistakable. In, just in our country alone, you know, over 44% of college students are dealing with these issues. Uh, we went from 33% of kids 16 years old down to four years old who were exhibiting signs pre-COVID. Now it's over 64%. Today's teenagers, they are estimating 5,000 hospitalized daily for mental health issues. The AMA is saying that our emotional health is surpassing now at this point our physical health problems. This is an epidemic. I say this is the Chicago fire of our generation. And so I'm I'm doing everything I can do to go everywhere I can to help people discover this alternative of a different way of living in the midst of these difficult times, because uncertainty is not over. Tell me a little bit about what you were advocating for. Is it, you know, you're, you're more than just raising awareness about this, right? You're, you're encouraging young folks to take seriously the concerns that they have, to acknowledge that those concerns are real, and then to do what? Well, we've developed some tools. I've developed tools that I know connect a power beyond myself to the issue that I'm facing. And so for me, the trigger is when my anxiety begins to rise, when I'm fighting depression. There are certain tools that uh, I think are will work for everyone that we're trying to put in people's hands, helping them figure out healthy ways to react to these challenges that they're finding in life. You spend a lot of time focusing on college students. What do you think is so unique about the sorts of anxieties and thoughts that come into their head? Uh, the ability to isolate. 
quite honestly. On, on a, for a college student, they, we found this during the pandemic when so many classes were canceled. I know of college students who didn't talk to another soul for months, and yet no one knew it. They just kind of isolated in the room, texted their parents every now and then to kind of keep them off them. But they were having no social contact whatsoever. Look, man, our bodies were not designed for that kind of isolation. We just weren't. We weren't designed for the kind of uncertainty that we've been in. And the answer is to be connected relationally with someone else. And so you take a college student who is basically a young adult who has resources available to them, but not enough life experience to know how to, in a positive way, move forward through some of these uh, struggles and their ability to isolate. It's a recipe for disaster many times. If we don't get conversations started where it's okay to not be okay, the most important thing you can do is raise your hand uh, find someone to fight this battle with, we're, we're not going to find a lot of progress in this area. What has been the response from students here in Arkansas? You know, I, I, I think there is what I would call a, a guarded optimism that there is a possibility. You know, I'll spend some time tonight with the fraternity, the, the beta chapter here on the campus of the University of Arkansas. And if, if of those if 50% of those young men that are there uh, would join us in what we call Gobi Care, the next 16 weeks, some digital delivery of uh, some tools that could equip them and some words to encourage them, if half of them would do that, then that's a touchdown because we can start a movement with a handful on every campus who, who will start to live this out. So I think there's guarded optimism. I would just say probably the most surprising part of this journey is when we wrote this children's book. Uh, that the the greatest feedback we got in the early days came from college students, uh, which talked to me not only about a hunger for simple answers, but something they could put their hands around, uh, something they could grab onto, not a journal, not a Psychology Today article, a little story about a fish that could do hard things if they'd keep their eyes on the sun and would help others along the way. Toby, thank you so much for spending some time with us, and thanks for your diligent work. Thanks. I appreciate it. I really do appreciate you helping us get the word out. Toby Slough is the founder of Gobi International Ministries. He's an author, mental health advocate, and pastor. I spoke to him yesterday in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Belfont. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich. Daniel Carruth attended the Indigenous Peoples Day event and provided the sound from that event. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us.